Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Politics on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Bill Scher. Today we are joined by the author of a great new book uh, chronicling the rise of the new left. Uh, We've got people from Jesse Jackson to AOC, the end of big money and the rise of a movement. He is the D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. Thanks for being on the show, Ryan Grimm. Oh, thanks a ton for having me. Uh, now, there's been a lot of talk about, um, you know, since the you know, Bernie Sanders primary uh, challenge in 2016 did much better than expected. The upset win by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, how that's impacted the House Democratic Caucus, how it's impacted the 2020 Democratic primary. Uh, there's been a lot of chatter about that. But in this book, you do... Um, some deeper reporting into how this movement came into being. What what did you find that wasn't already known by your average news consumer? Well, so I had been covering this as a, as you know, kind of this this tension between the left and the center left of the party, um, basically since two thousand and six when I was assigned to write about the. Uh, those midterms, the the Rahm Emanuel 2006 midterms. And so while very few people were paying attention to this simmering uh, battle uh, for a good reason, you know, it was basically my job to watch it on a day in, day uh, day in, day out basis and report on it. Um, and And the good reason that people weren't necessarily paying close attention to it is that the, in my book, the protagonists of the, of the fight, uh, were too weak um, to matter much. Uh, you had, um, you know, you had Howard Dean, you know, before I, before 2006, you had Howard Dean in 2003 and four, you know, make a, make a run at the, at the presidency. And, you know, that's kind of in, in the, the internet era, that's kind of the first blip of the, of the rise of this movement. Um, but after that, you don't, you don't really see much until kind of Sanders again. And so in that, interregnum you it was uh it doesn't mean that they weren't fighting it just means that they were losing uh constantly now you made the interesting choice to begin this narrative with the jesse jackson campaigns of 84 and 88 um and sometimes you will hear i think barack obama said you know something along the lines of you know without jesse jackson uh, we, we build on his success and but his campaigns didn't win he, he had a vision right of marrying uh, African-Americans with white workers that didn't quite make it. Is it just simply that he had a vision that is catching on now, or did people like Bernie Sanders and like Ocasio-Cortez and others recognize, here's what he didn't do correctly, and here's how we improved upon what, what he did? Right, and on your first point, like from a factual basis, and, and Jesse Jackson's very proud of this, the changes that uh, you know, he didn't he didn't win like you said the 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 
the pressure that he brought to bear on the party led to some significant rules changes around how how delegates are selected and how presidents are nominated in the party. And without those rule changes, Hillary Clinton wins the 2008 um, nomination. I think that's a I think it's a fairly uncontroversial statement, right? That uh, because they went more or less from um, winner take all to proportional, that that's what that's what allowed Obama to rack up his uh, delegate lead. Um, so in that sense, Obama was standing on his shoulders. But to your to your other point, yes, it, the, um, the the folks like Bernie Sanders who endorsed uh, Jesse Jackson's campaign and Ocasio Cortez that is the, that is the same coalition that they envision uh, a progressive populist majoritarian coalition that that combines you know white working class voters, black working class voters, brown working class voters, along with um, you know pr- other progressive whites and other you know elements of of the the Democratic co- coalition. Um, I, w- I want to delve into this a little bit more, but I want to perhaps bring in another element of your narrative in it before I, I do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a part of the book where you talk about how uh, the the Democratic diagnosis of presidential failures of the 80s was that the party had gone too left, that liberalism was being blamed. This really culminated with the mm-hmm. Dukakis campaign where George H. W. Bush, you know, used liberal as a real overt slur and Dukakis was really staggered by that. Uh uh, you may not know. I, I wrote a book in two thousand and six that actually made a similar point. Um because uh, I think as you say in your book, Walter Mondale wasn't running as a mm-hmm. loud and proud liberal. He was running as a bit of a deficit hawk, uh and turning away from uh certain uh traditional uh, liberal positions. Although, because he ran on raising taxes, that was seen as the big liberal thing that mm-hmm. he did, even though it wasn't the name of uh, deficit uh, reduction. Uh, so, um, uh, so what do you think uh, was the wrong lesson that Democrats learned from the failures of the eighties, and what has that been corrected since? Do Democrats now have a much more open embrace of liberalism, or is that debate still something that Democrats are not in consensus about? Yeah, I think it's the, the latter. They're not in they're not in consensus about it, and I think a lot of the resistance you see to a more um, you know openly progressive agenda comes from people who lived through that uh, that period of the eighties and early nineties. Uh, and convince themselves that they live in a they live in a center right party. It's a conservative country. I mean, they live in a conservative country, uh, and that they they have to uh, you know moderate their tone. Um, otherwise, they're going to get uh, they're going to get tossed out like they did uh, back back in the eighties. But now I've I've got to go back and read your two thousand six <laughs> book. That that sounds that sounds quite good. Um, you know, but the way the way that I think about about it and write about it in the book is, and then I draw on some. Uh, political science literature that has that has gone back and looked at the uh, the the drift that that the party made kind of to the right and to corporate interests and and drift is an is an interesting way of thinking about it because there were people who were making the the explicit argument um, Tony Quelo being being the loudest voice of them in the in the early nineteen eighties um, so he was they, a, you know, he was a California Democratic consultant. Uh, well, yeah, right. Congressman, California, oh, well, Democratic Congress, okay. now oh, yeah. a consultant. Now a consultant, um, right. yes. Um, and 
and he he became DCCC chair in after the 1980 cycle um, on the argument that Democrats needed a PAC strategy. They needed to do better with corporate fundraising because his argument was we lost in 1980 because Republicans figured out television um, and they figured out big fundraising and they figured out the 30-second attack ad and how how to play dirty. Um, there's, a, there's a nice section of that in that is that uh, masterpiece documentary on Roger Stone? Get me Roger Stone. Um, and how much credit you give to Stone is, is totally beside the point. But they did, um, they did absolutely learn how to go dirty in 1980. And so Democrats said, well, this is what we need to just match them dollar for dollar. Rather than taking kind of a longer view and thinking like, okay, the coalitions are realigning here. So what is, what is the way that we get to and what's what's the argument that we make that that forms a majoritarian coalition that that was cut off by the the need to raise to, for this PAC strategy that they developed. You so know, can't right. So is the point there that the real reason Democrats were getting beat in the eighties was not that Carter Mondale Dukakis was too far to the left was that Republic but it was that Republicans had a more uh, sinister and hardball strategy or or is there overlap between the two. They had a hardball strategy. That strategy right. was paint Democrats as too far to the left. Right. That, that was, that's exactly, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Like that's, you know, they would use the, their 30 second ads for that. And also, uh, you know, for, for other, um, you know, personal attacks, you know, the, the quote politics of personal destruction, you know, really start coming into, to play there. And, and Republicans get very good over the years, you know, at, disqualifying particular candidates um, rather than, you know, fighting it out on an, uh, an ideological terrain. Uh, and so Democrats felt like they needed to figure out how to do that to counteract uh, what Republicans were up to. And on the drift side of it, they were casting about for, you know, the, the best source of this money that would not, you know, be an immediate confrontation with their coalition. And so for instance, you don't really want auto executive money if if you're still uh, you know aligned very closely with the UAW. Um, the same could be true of some uh, you know some of the environmental elements of the party and, and oil money. And so, at the time, one of the most inoffensive sources of capital was Wall Street um, because Wall Street wasn't what it is today. You know, it was it was a, it was a much sleepier industry that was. You know, more of a, a utility to the economy than it was the actual entire engine of of the economy, uh, and so people didn't have an aversion to it, it before the SNL crisis, and 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 there weren't really any major elements of the co- Democratic coalition that were repulsed by the idea of Democrats getting money from finan- major financial institutions, and so they just gradually started taking more and more of that. And the next thing you know, it's becoming a, a dominant force in the party. Um, and I, and I let, let's dig into that um, tension between the, the, the corporate wing and the grassroots wing in just a little bit. Um, but just to, to uh, further this ideological uh, thread, um, Bill Clinton wins in 92 running as a third way candidate, intentionally pushing off of the left. And so that becomes part of the narrative that Democrats went too far to the left in the 80s. Clinton solved that problem right. by being a moderate. 
um, uh, the point that uh, that I made in my old book was that that didn't definitively prove that you could not win with a right. more liberal um, agenda. Right. And then seemingly right. Barack Jerry Obama Brown probably wins that election, right? Uh, what do you think? That's a good question. You know, um, you know, Clinton. Uh, you know, I've argued that you know Ross Perot drew from both Clinton and Bush, and uh, you know, Steve Kornacki is the most famous person making that argument. But I've made that argument as well. Uh, and part of the people that Perot got were disaffected Jerry Brown and Paul Songus voters who couldn't really cotton to uh, to Bill Clinton. So if you had a Jerry Brown there with a more fire breathing populist message, does he do even better? Than Bill Clinton because you don't lose um, that chunk of the party, but then, then of course the conference is what what Brown might have gotten. Would he have lost something else? Would he even seen as too far left and lost more of the middle to Bush? It's hard to fully right. game out. Um, but uh, to skip ahead, you know Barack Obama wins running you know, much less like a centrist, much less like a triangulator. Wins pretty convincingly, and that seems to suggest okay, you you don't need to run as a third way candidate anymore but barack obama doesn't run quite like a jesse jackson at least right. like, at least coalitionally he gets the african-american vote and gets um upscale white liberals and gets you know at least a chunk of the white working class doesn't win it outright but gets does okay uh and that's how he pulls it off uh so right. when you go when you go now to bernie bernie doesn't do the same thing. He tries, but he he, he gets uh, the white left vote in the primary, but he doesn't get the African-American vote. So how do you take Jesse to Obama to Bernie and say, OK, how does one get to the Obama place where you actually put together the full coalition? Someone like Ocasio-Cortez, mm -hmm. you know, you, 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 you need to take into account the, um, the demographics. Um, you know, uh, white Jesse Jackson does not do as well. You know, in 1988, I mean, they're like the idea of a white Jesse Jackson is silly, you know, because he is a civil rights leader. Uh, but you know what I mean? Like, so you, you need, and, and Ocasio-Cortez talked about this in a podcast, um, at the intercept actually, where she said like when she, um, first launched her campaign, um, on a, you know, straight up and down, you know, far progressive platform, uh, it was doing well. And she had. Um, you know, she had some base of support from, from progressives in the district, but when she, you know, uh, evolved her campaign to, to also bring in, um, her, you know, gender and race to it, that, that is what really fleshed out the, the candidacy. Um, she says it much more eloquently in the interview than I did, but, um, but you need all of those different pieces, um, at this point to pull the pull the coalition together because the um, there isn't a, a straight kind of class conscious majority co uh, coalition yet in, in the United States and there may never be. Um, and so you need, you need to hit all those, those different elements of it. Uh, it's to, to bring in the corporate piece of it, Barack Obama runs, you know, uh, symbolically to some extent superficially, uh, more to the left than past Democrats had, uh, but he also gets a lot of money from Wall Street. Uh, right. he, he does. I mean, he, he has a very robust small dollar dollar operation, but but he also gets the big money too. And this, to this day, completely irritates the left who says that 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 compromised Obama from the beginning. 
but it is how Obama, it helped Obama win. Dimitri wasn't outspent. And um, then you get, you get into the very big debate. Does it, was his agenda progressive enough or was it insufficiently progressive? But it certainly got him elected twice. Um, so why should the new left be so horrified at the idea that you can have both small donors and big donors in the same coalition? So I think they're, you know, you're not going to, in the short term, get rid of big donors completely anyway. Um, but if if the big donors want to participate, I would say that the, the place for them in a in a more functioning kind of social democratic party would be in in doing um, the, the the in building and maintaining the infrastructure of, of the party in in funding acorn like organizations who are doing you know community work. Um, doing voter registration, um, uh, you know, just uh, building the capacity of of the party rather than rather than directly financing candidates, um, and so that that would that would mean you're only getting kind of ideological big money. You know, there are there are a lot of uh, you know, because we have a lottery based um, economy, you wind up with lots of people getting lucky and becoming millionaires and billionaires. Um, a, a chunk of those are just, you know, left liberal people who who are just ideologically left and and want and want to support left politics. And you know, if they want to do that, then 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 you know, the way that Tom Steyer registered so many voters for Andrew Gillum in Florida seems like the most useful um, marriage of, of of those ideas. Um, but the, the the small dollar operation on a national level has gotten to the place where it may have been it may have been tactically required in 2008 to go dollar for dollar with John McCain, um, but it wouldn't be now. Like if 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 a, a Barack Obama or if actually Barack Obama um, you know ran in uh, 2020 or 2024, um, he could raise. You know, five hundred million dollars or more. You know, probably a billion, um, just in in small contributions. And so, if you can do that, then then why? Like, what does it bring? What does it bring to the coalition uh, to to have that uh, you know element of the of the party in it? Uh, so, just to be uh, transparent, I've I've skidded in this debate. I've written some articles for uh, Politico and Real Clear Politics on the subject, where I take the very obnoxious uh, pro corporate donor uh, side, which means we have many many uh, friends and colleagues. Uh, and I had um, a debate recently with uh, Jen Uger at the Young Turks, uh, who took issue with one of my pieces. And one thing that we um, had a different interpretation on was. Um, Elizabeth Warren's posture in the 2020 primary, and we're recording you know, in the spring of 19 uh, of, of 2019. Uh, and Warren has made a big show at not doing any fundraising events, mm-hmm. not doing any personal meetings with with big donors. It's strictly small donors, and so she and she's openly admitting, "I'm leaving some money on the table by by doing that." But she also says, "If I get the nomination." Then I would do that. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna unilaterally, unilaterally disarm against the Republican nominee. And you know, my interpretation of that is she's acknowledging that she she can take that money 
without diluting her agenda. Her agenda is what it is. And if you're giving to her, you, you, you know that going in, you might be trying to persuade her. You might be try, trying to get a seat at the table to push her away from it. But at the end of the day, she gets to make the call what her position is going to be. And Jenk was more, you know, I love Elizabeth Warren. I don't think she should have done that. I think the money is inherently corrupting. Uh, I trust her to resist it, but I still doesn't, don't think that that changes my view on what that money represents. Uh, so where would where do you think the rising progressive movement views that? I mean, obviously, the general sense is the money is inherently corrupting, but is there wiggle room, a la Elizabeth Warren, to say, you know what, we got to beat Trump and whatever it's going to take, we, we have to do it? Right. I mean, there might be, but it would be the exception that would kind of prove the rule. And you don't really want to rely systematically on on the willpower um, and the and the backbone of a progressive you know, presidential nominee. Now, if if we wound up with a situation where the Democratic Party had actually nominated Elizabeth Warren, um, and and she, you know, she knows she ha- she already has a a network of high net worth people who have donated to her in the past, who who I would say fit in that definition of the the kind of ideological donor. Like these are not people. Um, now, you know, she's done some uh, legislative work on behalf of medical device companies, um, on behalf of uh, hearing uh, Bose, whose you know headquarters in Massachusetts went to battle with hearing aid companies. Um, so it's not like she doesn't like you know pick out some special interests and, and get and get behind them in particular issues. Um, and but in general, I would I would suspect that most of those donors that that she's talking about being willing to do dinners for in the in the general are kind of the ideological left donors who happen to be extremely rich people um and so it might be the case that in this one-off that elizabeth warren doesn't end up getting uh you know corrupted one way or another by that by that process but i i it's there's just no way you can kind of put you know systematize that it, you know in, in the long run it is it's just inherently um corrupting and and maybe she's underestimating the amount of uh small dollars that that she could raise uh against trump from you know july uh, through november we're talking with ryan Grimm here on the new books and politics podcast the author of we've got people from jesse jackson to alexandria ocasio-cortez the end of big money and the rise of a movement published by strong arm press which is your own brainchild correct yeah alex lawson uh and i launched that a couple of years ago amazon's utter annihilation of the industry makes it much easier for uh small publishers to come in now now as part of this book you you do some digging into what happened in the obama administration and how that informs uh, how this new uh, rising progressive movement sees what they what uh, they believe needs to be done going forward. There's there's not um, there's not blind love to the Obama administration mm-hmm. on the left. Is that fair to say? That is fair to say. So what did what did you dig up in your reporting that you don't think is is widely known? Well, the what what I, what I think is most interesting to people today is. And I, I went back and talked to a bunch of people who were involved in his 
in you know organizing for America, which was this grassroots operation that came out of his campaign, um, and involved in the early decisions around strategically how to how to confront Washington. And you know you can you can imagine that there are two ways that you that you barrel into Washington coming out of the 2008 presidential campaign with uh, uh, nearly a million jobs a month being lost, unemployment 12, uh, you know, creeping above 12 percent, um, the, the country in free fall and pundits talking openly about what kind of party is going to replace the GOP. You know, the, 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 the Democrats were in an extraordinary and, and, an, and an extraordinary delicate uh, moment. And so you can either take all of this historic energy that you've built up in in 2008 and, and try to go for broke. Um, tell your supporters, you know, that you tr- basically want them to form you know, what what indivisible became in 2017. Um, show up at town halls uh, or what the Tea Party became in uh, summer 2009. Show up at town halls, call your member of Congress, bird dog them at events, tell them that you know the stimulus needs to be. You know, three trillion dollars over the next three years, or you know, whatever the whatever the number they need to need to come in at uh, that that they that they want to do, you know, robust uh, health care care reform. Um, that's the time to do climate change through reconciliation legislation is right now. Um, you, know, you barrel into town um, and you try to change the dynamics um, that way, which which we you know. Get you know pushes people like Arlen Specter and Olympia Snow and Susan Collins, the moderate um, Republicans the mod- of the, the time. Right. Which, although Specter then flipped after the Recovery right, Act so vote, it shows that he was um, he was pressurable. He became a Democrat, um, and so or you rely on the goodwill of the Republicans to to come to a reasonable compromise um, in, in this great time of need. And and this, and the same with the the blue dogs and the new Democrats that kind of you know twin conservative factions within the within the House caucus. You, you sit down with them and you ask them what they need, what you know, what they think the districts require them to do, um, and you play time an inside game. And and he he went that route. Um, and I think the consequences were that the that the Tea Party was um, emboldened uh, and that. Of, and you know that eventually, you know, the the movement towards Trump, you know, develops out of that that, that anger that was never, um, you know, quite dealt with. Um. So how does so? I, mean, I I like my sense of the the new left critique of Obama is that it was you know, half measures. Um. It didn't fully resolve the uh, pain caused by the economic um, crisis of 2008, um, that anger fueled the Tea Party, eventually fueled the rise of Donald Trump. Uh, it led to disastrous midterms in 2010, 2014. Uh, and therefore, you need to have a more robust popul- uh, left populism to uh, avoid those problems and have a sustainable majority. Um, and it seems in my mind that narrative is complicated <laughs> Well, Why let me stop you. Sure. With one Please. one clarification. Yep. Um, I don't necessarily think doing everything you said would guarantee a sustainable majority. 
I think that we're in a period where for the foreseeable future, where the elections are going to whipsaw back and forth and you're going to see wave after wave. We've There's been a wave since 2006. Almost every election has been a wave. Um, at some point, you have to stop calling them waves, which is <laughs> elections. Um, as long as the party, parties are in flux and people are so angry, you're going to... You know, you're going to see people washed out. And so I think the Republican response to that reality was, OK, we've got two years. Um, let's let's do everything we can. Now, they failed to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Um, but, you know, going into the midterms, nobody would have told them that the best, the smartest thing for you right now um, is to you know do a six trillion dollar tax cut and or blow up. Um, the whole mortgage deduction when you're trying to hold on to these all these suburban districts. And instead, they said, "Well, what's more important to us, holding the house or, or six trillion dollars in tax cuts?" Um, and they chose the six trillion dollars in tax cuts. And so the the flip side would be, well, Democrats, if, if they're going to get swept out eventually anyway, do the most popular thing that you can do and get it in place, so that when you do lose power, it stays in place, like the Affordable Care Act did. So then the question becomes, what's the goal of party politics? Is it to for the party to stay in power or is it to create public policy that benefits the, the coalition represented by that party? So do you think I mean, that was that was a very clear eyed um, uh, strategy going forward, you know, not expecting to win in perpetuity, um, so get what you can while you got the power right, and don't design your. Don't design your coalition to, to just try to cling to power. Do you think that is the common belief amongst the activist leaders and the political of uh, uh, the, the more left office holders that you have spoken with for this for this book? Do they think this is about uh, surviving in a polarized pendulum swinging environment, or do they believe if they got this agenda passed in their first two years, they th- it would be so popular that they would keep winning elections? Right. Not not many people agree with me on this. And so like uh, Michael Podhorster, who's very smart like, analyst and strategist. Audio cut a little bit people. there. Can you repeat that last couple oh. sentences? So I'm in the minority on this one. Uh, Michael Podhorster, who is a very smart strategist at the AFL-CIO, is one of the few people I've interviewed who who kind of agree with this whipsaw pendulum um, idea, but generally, when you take when I t- when I talk to the uh, activists and you know progressive legislators about this, they're they would rather believe that progressive ideas are so popular that if you can implement them, then the people are going to reward you at the at the next election um, because they're so popular. And I can say, well, they can be popular, but that doesn't mean that the party itself can become unpopular through events that had nothing to do with the party. Let's say there's a, there's a VP oil spill in the Gulf that is really pissing people off and it comes right before the election. Um, or uh, you have an Ebola outbreak and ISIS sweeping across Iraq, which um, are those, neither of those forces um, you know, can be necessarily uh, controlled, planned for, or put at the feet of uh, you know, a single person of the party or another, yet whoever is in power at that moment is going to bear the brunt of the, of the criticism from, from voters. 
And I don't think that a lot of activists have, have internalized that or, or want to believe that because, um, you know, you, you, it's much, I think it's probably much more comforting to think that well, if, if I can, if I can, you know, run on, implement, uh, popular policies, then I'll be popular and I'll, and I'll stay in, in power. And, and in a functioning system, you would think that is how it would be, but that, you know, that's asking a bit much. Well, here's why I think the uh, affordable care is, is an interesting case study because here is a law that w- was uh, fueled by a grassroots push. There was the Healthcare for America Now coalition mm-hmm. that really beat the drones for healthcare and made it kind of a a necessity that Democrats couldn't go go to voters in 2010 and say, "Sorry, got funded, nothing here." Funded by big money. Well, I mean, and, which, and, which and, goes to my other point, that, right? Like, that's a, that's an okay place for some big money. So, and, and there were partnerships between um, groups like Families USA, which is uh, a consumer healthcare consumer operation, partnering with Big Pharma, the pharmaceutical lobby, <laughs> and they plowed a ton of money into. Um, I mean, they brought back the Harry and Louise actors from the Clinton right. from the Hillary Care debacle uh, when the pharmaceutical companies, you know, lambasted that with this Harry and Louise ad campaign. They brought those actors back for pro Obamacare ads. Uh, pharmaceuticals get a sweetheart deal in the bill. This really irritates the left. This says this this shows mm-hmm. why this whole system is corrupt and flawed. But at the same time, you have some corporate buy in in the bill that makes it harder to uh, repeal root and branch once they do lose power. You know, you had a mm-hmm. healthcare company saying to the Trump administration and the House Republicans, don't repeal this. This is going to make everything go haywire. Right. Don't do this. So is there a benefit at getting that buy-in? If the pendulum is going to keep swinging back and forth, some force needs to be around for continuity's yeah. sake. Does having corporate buy-in yes. for liberal um, policies help with that? Yeah, well, it, it can. And so, you know, it also helped that lots of, you know, 20 plus million people had health care. Um, so you had regular people who didn't want it repealed. Um, and then you had industry who was warning of, you know, a catastrophe. Let's say they could put a Green New Deal or some type of major climate change legislation into place. You know, that that creates entire new corporate sectors um, or, or, or buttresses, buttresses them like. Republicans ideologically would have loved to get rid of the solar panel credits, um, you know, when they were when they were in power and they had and they had the power to do it, uh, and they and they left the credits in place. And that's not because um, big oil was all of a sudden okay with having uh, solar based competition, uh, but it was because there are probably more solar jobs in West Virginia now than coal jobs. Um, it's it's become an industry. In the sense that it has both voters uh, and and donors, so so I do think it's smart to think about what what constituencies you're creating with policy, so that those constituencies then defend the policy when you're inevitably cast into the minority. The other thing I wanted to ask you is, what does 2018 say about? where this movement what what the prospects of this new progressive movement so we have it we had a narrative from uh, elements of the left saying that uh this long history of democratic accommodation with corporate interests and centrism uh it was uh disastrous for democrats in 2010 2014 it was disastrous especially disastrous in 2016 with hillary losing to 
Donald Trump, who, who outflanked her uh, on populism. Uh, and we have the example of Ocasio-Cortez, of course, um, which is now a, a new leader for this movement. But most Democrats that got elected in 2018 were not in the Ocasio-Cortez mold. They were more like, you know, a, a Dean Phillips, who was in a suburban district in mm -hmm. uh, Minnesota, or you, you know, certain outlier examples like um, you know, Joe Cunningham in South Carolina won. Um, you have a lot, a lot of folks that ran on. I mean, there were sort of there were certain populist elements, like you know the corporate Republican corporate tax cuts are bad. Republicans want to take away your health care, but it wasn't single payer. It wasn't Green New Deal. It was a lot of you know Washington dysfunction. Washington's not working. Right. Uh, right. So uh, okay, a lot of them did run on a lot of them did run on Medicare for all. Um, you know who who ended up flipping. Flipping a lot of districts, oh, less than uh, the Trump I, one districts. So you have you Clinton one districts that were that Republican held. You had more Medicare for all folks and right. redder districts. That wasn't as much the case, right? But so the the, the suburban sweep um, certainly wasn't wasn't slowed by people who supported Medicare for all. Um, you know, and you had a couple, you know, Katie Porter. Um, is a is a good example of somebody who who won there, but I think that like reading reading my book, people would not be terribly surprised that there wasn't uh, more of a, a robust left because it, these things don't just come from nowhere, um, and it was a skeleton for so long. The movement was such a skeleton for so long that um, you know the 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 infrastructure wasn't really there to match to match the the energy. Um, and so the, the moment couldn't quite be, couldn't quite be realized. Um, and so, yeah, it is true that like the, the, the DCCC style candidates, you know, you know, more often than not won their, uh, won their primaries against the, against the progressive in the race and the progressive didn't really have the firepower, um, and didn't have the kind of social base, um, that was going to put them over the top that like, that's. It tends not to be a thing that exists in a lot of these districts um, around the country. So is there uh, what I'm curious is, is there any kind of strategic recalibration on the left because of that? I saw in, immediately after the midterm election, Sean McElwee at Data for Progress, who's one of the intellectual architects uh, behind uh, the, the new left, he seemed to acknowledge, you know, um, People like Ocasio-Cortez are our future. We need to build power in the deep blue districts. We're having, a, we're having better luck there than in the Trump one district. So let's focus on that to build our numbers. Uh, is, that the, is that the prevailing view or is there still a high level of confidence that uh, this agenda has salience regardless of ge geographics and demographics? And so... We just need to double down and triple down and not worry about the fact that people who are relatively moderate won hand at certain races in 2018. That does seem to be the direction that groups like uh, Justice Democrats, you know, have taken. Um, and not necessarily because they don't think they can't, that they can't win in swing districts, um, but that they're, they have they have limited resources at this point. Um, and so the thinking is, OK, look, look at the radical shift in the conversation just by getting uh, Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, uh, Ayanna Presley into Congress, Katie Porter, um, 
I would actually include in that, though she doesn't fit because she's not a, a blue district. Um, but you, you, so you you focus there, um, and then you get the entire country and the whole caucus talking about a Green New Deal because you've got, um, you know, a new power center in these strong blue districts, and then that should that should then influence the politics of this of the swing districts. Like that's the that's the kind of theory. Um, and I think that's, oh, that's okay, but it doesn't, it's not a substitute for also organizing in those swing districts. What do you, what do you think about the impact of the Green New Deal and more broadly, uh, to abolish ICE happened before Green New Deal. There was a big push for abolish ICE Mm -hmm. in 2018. Uh, It made a lot of noise for a few weeks. The Republicans did, um, Disingenuous. And it surged with the the caging of children right, coming up. To right. Come. Yeah. So you know, I wrote a piece about this where I was arguing: you know, Democrats were united around don't cage children. They were united around pathway to citizenship. They were not united around abolish ICE. And so uh, when that gets forced onto the floor by Republicans to try to embarrass Democrats, Democrats run away from abolish ICE. They don't vote for that resolution, uh, and abolish ICE tends to fizzles out as a talking point. Um, Green New Deal is having a bit more um, resonance than Abolish ICE has, even though Republicans did the same move. They took the the, the Ocasio-Cortez resolution, mm-hmm. they threw it on the Senate floor. Democrats did not vote for it, um, and so you're you're not seeing the presidential candidates on the Democratic side run on the literal text of the Green New Deal resolution. They're not taking all of the elements. They're using the slogan. They're working within mm-hmm. the framework. Uh, so you could say, well, we have achieved an Overton window success. We right. have we have pushed the the debate in our direction, even if we're not getting exactly what we want. We're, we're better than we were before. Are are folks left uh, taking that victory, or are they saying, look, if Joe Biden comes out with a plan for net zero emissions by 2050, the plan is fried in 12 years. That's still not good enough, and I'm and I'm not happy. Um, do you think their their agenda is more Overton window, or is it to win the literal um, policy proposals that are that are maximalist and absolutist? Well, both, and I and uh, Sunrise really beat up that O'Rourke when he came out with a really strong plan, and and in the wake of that, they did a lot of um, kind of self criticism over their their response to it, um, and and saying that yeah, look, we want the strongest possible, but we were we were too critical on that because it is a well thought out and, and legitimate uh, plan that we that we want to give real credit to O'Rourke for, for for putting out there. And so you're seeing them you're seeing them grow and mature as they're evolving as, a, they, as they an organization. Were, they were gentler to Biden, even though I think Biden's plan is somewhat similar to Biden. Yeah, right? and I and that and that was a direct result of their their reflection on on their reaction to to O'Rourke. Um, so they, they, they look at Biden putting out a very strong plan and they see it as a, as a significant win, um, and in a shift of the Overton window and in like it's the idea that he put one out at all, um, when it appeared like he wasn't going to, um, but then there's, but they're still critical, you know, their, their response was, this is a great plan. Um, on the other hand, you still have. Uh, you know, it was written by somebody who was on the board of a natural gas company, and you're still taking fossil fuel money. 
um, and it should be more ambitious, but it's very good. Um, and so they're trying to do, you know, use both carrots and sticks. So just to wrap things up, what do you think people, when people read your book, when people read, we've got people, uh, what's their big takeaway going to be? Well, it's been fun to watch people read it and get their takeaway. Cause you know, you're never sure exactly what, um, and the, the main takeaway from people I've been meeting around the country who've read it, and I'm also, I'm so flattered that people actually have read it because it's like 400 pages and I can't get people to read past the third paragraph of a lot of stories. <laughs> and it's, and it's becoming clear that people are actually reading it. That just, um, makes it all worth doing. Um, they, 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 they keep asking, why won't Democrats just fight? Um, that seems to be a main takeaway that, that, uh, that. The, that these particular activists slash readers that they want, they they want they want a party that's going to fight for them, and they understand they're going to lose some fights. But what they can't get their head around is is that is the lack of the fight and and the the find, finding kind of the energy and the motivation for a fight when it's against the left within the party that doesn't seem they don't seem to have a problem knowing how to go to war. Um, but they they tend to direct their their sharpest attacks, you know, internally in the caucus, and and so people are like, why won't they just why won't they just go after Republicans with this with this ferocity? Um, and I think a lot of that goes back to what we were talking about earlier the 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 1980s, the trauma associated with you know, liberalism, you know, them believing that liberalism was getting tossed out, and a lot of people um, who are you know newer to politics you know, just didn't go through that that formative experience and so they're not afraid of the republican party in the way that the older generation is the book is we've got people from jesse jackson to alexandria ocasio-cortez the end of big money and the rise of a movement published by strong arm press ryan grimm thanks so much for being on new books and politics thanks bill